Brandon Edgens. And I'm Anson Mount. And Anson, what is our history with prosthetic makeup? Remember? Remember that time back in Swanee? Oh, yeah. What was yeah, was that our senior year or was that our junior year? Senior year. Senior year, yeah. I spent uh, every Sunday of a semester or more uh, <laughs> out in a cow field with you gluing a prosthetic to my forehead and then letting you chain me to the tree. And then mm-hmm. Jonathan Myberg, now famous rock star, who mm-hmm. also composed our theme, uh, spent time out there too, covered in, in mud, in doing mud. your your surrealist thesis film. (laughs) (laughs) And the prosthetic that was on your head was to look like the indentation of a horse's hoof that had kicked you in the head and broken your skull. And it made you crazy, which is why your family had to tie you to a tree, chain you to a tree in the backyard. That was the story. Uh, Do you remember also one time I remember, didn't I drive away one time? I forgot that you hadn't unlocked you. I think I remember <laughs> yes. driving away and looking up on the horizon, this figure frantically jumping up and down, waving. I'm like, oh, we should probably unlock Anson. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's part of everything that I've, every production I make, I seem to always find some excuse, some reason to include special effects makeup because that was my first, my first love. That was my first fascination. And it started surprisingly early. I started back when I was in second grade. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, and it was weird how it started. Remember, you know, like, so it's craft time, you know, mm-hmm. put yourself back there. You're playing with crayons. You're playing with Elmer's glue and gluing sticks together. I don't know. Uh, that kind of stuff. And when you were done with the Elmer's glue, a bunch of it would end up being kind of wasted sitting at the bottom of like a little tin pan. And, I was fascinated by the texture of it, the dried Elmer's glue. I would start peeling it away from, uh, from the, from the metal and realizing, God, this is like, it's like a rubbery translucent. It's like skin. And uh, and then of course you would, you know, put some Elmer's glue on your fingertip and let it dry and then peel it off. And it took the impression of your fingerprint. And I don't, I don't, there's no accounting for why I found that so fascinating, but I did. Uh, I thought it was just so cool. And I realized that there was potentially um, the ability to create some sort of illusion using that material. And I thought, well, what if I mixed uh, Elmer's glue with uh, shavings of crayon to give it some intrinsic color so it would look more like flesh? So I I don't really know why I was so interested in uh, simulating flash so much. And I don't remember at the time if I was even that into horror movies. Um, but I soon became very interested in horror movies and very interested in monsters. And, uh, one of my first movie ideas was based around a, uh, remember I was very young, the very (laughs) imaginatively named pipe creature because it lived in a pipe. (laughs) Um, and I was obsessed with this thing. I drew it all the time. I imagined its home. I imagined, uh, its life, you know, what did it do? Other than, you know, waiting for kids to come by that it would snatch and, you know, drag down and eat, I suppose. And so I would, uh, to create these sort of fantasy worlds, I would experiment a little bit more, a little bit more with materials for, uh, most of my early birthdays and Christmases, all I wanted was raw materials. I just wanted clay 
And then when I found out about latex, all I wanted was latex. And in a small town in Rome, where I was from, nobody knew what I was talking about. And it didn't really seem to exist anywhere. I ended up spending a summer with my grandmother in Macon, Georgia, and ended up going into a hobby shop. And I found a little pint jar of liquid latex and I lost my mind. I thought it was, that was like, I don't know if I've ever been happier to encounter a product in my entire life before or since. And I was like, latex, this is the miracle substance I've been looking for. <laughs> and so I started, I still wasn't sure exactly what to do with it, but I knew that it was necessary. I'd, I'd read enough uh, little bits and pieces of information, you know, that latex was important to uh, the art and science of special effects makeup. And this became an absolute obsession. It's all I did. It's all I did. I can't stress this enough. It's all I did through uh, middle school and high school. You know, I won the Halloween competition every year because <laughs> I was doing these really elaborate prosthetics. But, you know, back then it was hard to figure out how to do this stuff. There were no classes. And uh, so it came mostly from um, looking at pictures that I found in books that weren't necessarily even about makeup effects. There'd be like a little chapter about it and there'd be a book, there'd be a black and white photograph in there of somebody, you know, John Chambers or somebody like that at work. And I would just stare at that photograph and scrutinize it with a magnifying glass. Look at what's, what, what are those tubes? What are those things on his desk? What's he using? What, what are the materials? Look on his shelf behind him, you know, oh, molds. Okay, I get it. I think you make a mold of a clay sculpture first. Okay. So I had to piece it together, trial and error. There were many, many, many accidents. Uh, like, you know, trying to take my first live cast of myself using <laughs> plaster. Uh, that did not go well because it bonded to my eyebrows. And Wait, you didn't put the Vaseline on first, no, right? No, <laughs> And luckily it was a thin layer of plaster because if it gets deep enough and thick enough, it can generate enough to heat to burn you. But I didn't get, I didn't have that. It just bonded in my face. So now imagine the, uh, the clownish sight of me, probably 12, 13 years old, uh, with a screwdriver and a hammer hitting myself in the head. <laughs> 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 Trying to chip it off. <laughs> You know, and uh, taking a lot of my eyebrows with it. Um, and it's funny, I was really worried. I went to my dad and said, Dad, I've lost a lot of my eyebrows. And he laughed. He's like, eh, you get plenty of eyebrows. Um, uh, so anyway, uh, it was my obsession. And the guys that did it professionally were heroes. You know, at that you know age, a lot of kids are into like, you know, they're sports figures or, or whatever. But I worshipped. Rob Bottin and Rick Baker and Dick Smith and uh, those guys. I had pictures of their work all up in my upstairs studio, uh, like a gallery. And to me, it was a gallery. And to me, a horror film was a gallery show. And I would go, I was, I'd usually fast forward through uh, horror movies. I was just looking for the part, you know, that, you know, Rick Baker had recently contributed. So that brings us to now and why I was so excited when uh, the authors of a new book, Masters of Makeup Effects. My name is Marshall Julius. I'm a journalist and author. I prefer to call myself a word monkey because it's a good catch-all phrase. My name is Howard Berger. Uh, I, uh, I'm here at K&B Effects Group, Inc., which is the makeup effects company I co-own with Greg Nicotero. Um, and uh, I'm a makeup effects artist. He has over 800 feature film and television credits. He dances with wolves. 
uh, Kill Bill 1 and 2, The Amazing Spider-Man 2, The Orville, The Chronicles of Narnia, uh, for, he got, uh, for which he got an Academy Award. And he teamed up with the writer, Marshall Julius. Who's, but, uh, but wait, you're, you're missing a very important credit mm-hmm. uh, by Howard Berger. If you go all the way to the bottom uh, of his IMDb page, mm-hmm. he was a makeup effects crew member on Evil Dead 2. I mean, his fingerprints are all over uh, the industry. And, a lot, and if you like horror movies, you've been watching Howard's work for a long, long time. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you've seen absolutely. a lot of his work. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you. And he teamed up with uh, Marshall Julius, who's a, uh, uh, a British film critic, blogger, broadcaster. His previous books include Vintage Geek and Action, the action movie A to Z. They got together uh, during the pandemic and put together this beautiful book. And for me, it was just like, I don't know, it was crack. Yeah, and I'm, and frankly, I miss all of that. But uh, they got in touch with me and it was a great, great conversation and we just started out where monster kids start out how did you become a monster kid (laughs) growing up in los angeles i I had the upper hand because here we were in you know hollywood california and where they make the movies and my dad was in the film industry he was a post-production sound editor and we just used to watch movies nonstop, you know, and, and mostly the horror films because I really love the horror films. And I think the very first one I saw was uh, The Two-Headed Transplant with Rosie Greer and, and um, Ray Milan. And I, what sticks out in my mind is in the opening of the film, there's this two-headed gorilla in a, in a grocery store, which was made by Rick Baker, uh, you know, back in the early 70s. And I just thought that was so cool. And then that led into seeing... Dr. Fives with Vincent Price, which that film terrified me. And I had like nightmares um, for for weeks and weeks. And I remember my mom coming in and yelling at me and saying, you will never see another horror movie as long as you live. But obviously that didn't stick. Um, but yeah, I just, I just loved monsters and movies and figured that somebody made them, you know? And also having parents that were the same. Like my parents didn't dismiss my interests. They encouraged it. Um, even to the point where my, my mother was an artist and she drew up a one-to-one scale creature from the black lagoon on butcher paper and hung it on the back of my bedroom door. So at night when I go to bed, she closed the door. I could look at the creature from the black lagoon all night. And she knew how much that meant to me. So was the creature uh, from the black lagoon, the, uh, did it feel like a buddy to you? I mean, how was your relationship to these monsters? Uh, I definitely saw them as friends and things for some strangers that I could relate to, but maybe it was a matter of that. I could, I could portray them, you know, and I would, I, you know, if there was a period of time where I had accidentally knocked out all my front teeth and I just had my canines and my mom made me a Dracula cape and I would wear that around the neighborhood. I was probably like six years old, seven years old. And, um, and everyone in the neighborhood called me Dracula. So to me, the humans were always the bad guys, not the creature from the Black Lagoon, not King Kong, not Godzilla. Everybody was fine. They were all living their lives. And then a bunch of idiots come in and ruin it all. So when my children were small, I have three, three kids that are all grown up now. But my daughter, Kelsey, uh, I showed her Valley of the Guanji, which is a Ray Harryhausen movie, which is my favorite Ray Harryhausen movie. And at the end, she cried because they killed Guanji. And I did that it hit it. And I'm like, mm-hmm. that's it. She got it. You know, she wasn't like, mm-hmm. yeah, they killed the dinosaur or indifferent. She was sitting there sobbing because they just had killed Guanji. So I've kind of like 
even though she doesn't admit it, I think she's a bit of a monster kid as well. But but after all, growing up for 30 years with a dad who's obsessed with monsters, how can you not be? I think that you could say that uh, because most people who, who grew up as monster kids, whether they, you know, were on Howard's side as, as the creators or on my side as the sort of, as the fanboys, um, we all felt sort of like outsiders. I mean, the cool kids weren't running around the neighborhood in a Dracula cape, you know, that wasn't like... What? <laughs> that wasn't the football team doing that. But the interesting kids were, the best kids were, the, the ones who actually grew up to be interesting um, did. And I think maybe because monsters are, you know, so hounded and treated so cruelly mm. and, the, the, you know, they are sort of relatable. Um, obviously, that only works in some cases. I mean, I don't think anybody ever said that Jaws was relatable. You know, it's right. like, you know, you have to draw a line somewhere. It's... Uh, but also, um, my my father passed away when I was quite young, and um, for me, um, that was like that left me with this appalling fear of death when I was very young, and um, I used to get a lot of nightmares um, from it. Um, but somehow, um, horror movies uh, sort of trivialized death. You know, they made it more manageable. It just didn't seem so real to me. And maybe after this kind of some real life horror, um, seeing people dying in movies was never really, you know, never really hit like it does in real life. And somehow it just seemed to make it more manageable, less frightening, watching it to happen to other people. It's sort of, it's sort of a hard, slightly unquantifiable feeling, but it's almost sort of comforting watching um watching people struggle for their lives and usually fail until the last person survives and kills the monster. But the monster always comes back, of course. Um, mm. I mean, th those are two really good, deep philosophical reasons, but I think mainly I like monsters because they're just freaking cool, man. I mean, they're giant, they got radioactive breath or they're, you know, the size of the empire state building and they're stomping on people or they're just like, you know, maybe for people who, who felt a bit powerless, um, it's sort of like, ha, take that, you bullies, take that, you cool kids. You know, I can just come and, you know, just, you know, wreak havoc. I, I just think there's so many different ways that you can approach monsters, but they're all incredibly appealing, you know, as far as I'm concerned. There's just so many ways to analyze it, but it's just you grow up obsessed with them or you don't, do you? So, you know, some people don't mm -hmm. even like horror films. I don't know how to even talk to those people. <laughs> You know, it's just like, what are you and, and why are you? Marshall, uh, were you ever interested in doing this yourself? I mean, I, mean, I knew you were a, a monster kid as, a, as in a fan, but would you ever experiment as a kid with making your own or dabbling with? Yeah, I mean, I had a very rich fantasy life involving, you know, monsters and creatures and, and playing. It, monsters weren't the only thing that I was interested in. You know, I was, it, it was I, my mom was a big uh, movie nerd. And so every Saturday we would pull the sofa up in front of the TV and watch old films. And so my first, my first sort of film education before Monsters was um, the films of Fred Astaire and, and Bob Hope. And, uh, you know, I just grew up watching all the NGM musicals and um, lots of old comedies and um, sort of graduated onto Hitchcock and Billy Wilder. And, and then there were all my own things that I sort of gravitated towards, like, uh, you know, James Bond films. And I, I love the Flint movies. I remember in the first Flint movie, he has like a golden lighter that had like a hundred different things built into it. And uh, it was, you know, a, a 
take on on Bond. And and for some reason, even though we've got no smokers in the family, my mum found a gold lighter that had no fuel in it, but it still made that click. And I spent like a week running around the house in the garden playing Flint, you know? It was like, so like in my head, I was in movies all the time. I used to play Doctor Who with my friends and we would say, okay, we're not going to like... we're not going to like come up with a story. We're just going to walk around and then somebody has just react to something. So like we walk around and we go, hello, the Daleks. And we, you know, run away. And it was just, you know, so it was like constantly like, like that. But I suppose, although I was like, you know, kind of experimenting and, and making things, I always seemed to be, you know, kind of drawing something or filming something or recording something. Um, I always felt like writing was my thing you know, just always, you know, I love drawing, but it's not, I'm particularly good at it, but I love writing. It's always sort of come to me sort of quite naturally. Mm. And uh, I, I enjoy doing that. So from when I was um, quite young, I used to write, I used to write stories, like really ghastly horror stories. I remember calling my cousin Ronald once and I said, if there was a train crashed into another train and a guy got thrown out the window and he was like cut to ribbons, how long do you think it would take for him to bleed to death while he was crawling along the platform? You know, so I'm not surprised actually that my teachers, because I would write these stories for English class, um, never actually went to my mum and said, you know, um, your son is incredibly disturbed and he needs to see someone because it was the 70s. And mm-hmm. actually, you know, everyone was a freak in their own way and nobody mm-hmm. really thought about anyone's mental health. And thank God for that, because it's like God knows what I would have grown up. I would have been desensitized or something like turn me into like Malcolm McDowell three quarters of the way through Clockwork Orange. But uh, mm-hmm. no, for me, it was always always about writing. And um, I guess, I, you know, how would... Um, as an amazing artist and grew up in the heart of Hollywood it, 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 with the industry all around him. And so I think that it just seems sort of possible to, to you, right? Howard, is that fair to say? But, you know, I grew up in North London in Southgate and there wasn't really a, a big film industry in, 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 in North right. London um, at the time. And um, I don't even know if it would have, you know, I think I was just meant to be a writer. Um, you know, I'm more interested now in, 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 um, writing maybe writing a you know a movie or something but uh, i've always been a fan and and proud of it and kind of just um fiercely advocating the things that i love and as i've got older and i've noticed the generations of people who, who aren't even aware you know there there are millions of people walking around who don't even know who doug mcclure is i mean how is that possible they're like they didn't see warlords of atlantis it's like okay maybe they've heard of ray harrahausen but it was like you know mate there's a lot more than you know those 15 movies that ray harrahausen did you know there's also a lot of glorious crap that we absolutely loved and we, that we were raised on that i look at now and it just sends me giddy still so it's like i feel like it's part of my my life mission to make sure that people don't forget um, the giddy crap, you know, because it all has incredible value and it just means, you know, so much to me. And that was really, I think how, uh, what um, Howard and I bonded over in the first place and, and sort of where the book came from, because we both love the same stuff because as great a creator is um, Howard is equally a great fan. 
you know, and that's something that I found that a lot of the makeup guys are, they all are. Everybody starts as fans. I think if you're an actor or some people, they start off because they want to be, they see actors, but they're not necessarily fans so much as they want that fame. They want to be up on the big screen and stuff. But I think that a lot of makeup guys, they just want to emulate their heroes. They 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 want to contribute to that amazing world um, that they've seen that, that raised them and to be a part of that. And, you know, that's what we wanted to capture with the book. So if you remember, I started out with Elmer's glue and at the time my materials were just, you know, arts and craft stuff, crayons and pens and pencils. And sure. <laughs> uh, that's all I had. And all I could really do with that was simulate um, wounds, which I loved doing. And I would simulate them on my friends who would then run into their house pretending to be badly injured. <laughs> and this is why I was no longer allowed to play at Mark Kaledze's house. <laughs> <laughs> I have three younger sisters and I, uh, I would experiment on them and do makeups and casualty makeups and things like that, just out of the kit stuff that I, that I could buy at the local makeup store. Uh, you know, I, I just tried to learn all I could. And at that point, there wasn't any, obviously no internet, not a lot of books, but there was Famous Monsters of Filmland that was being published by uh, and edited by Forey Ackerman. And that was a really great source, even though it was a magazine that is filled with just fluff, you know, like as far as there's nothing that tells you how to do anything in that magazine, but there were photos. And I could look at the photographs like with a magnifying glass and try to see what was on John Chambers' work desk, you know, or what was happening at Dick Smith's, you know, basement shop. So when I was 15 years old, uh, I know I was already, I'd already built a foam latex oven in my parents' garage. Um, I was trying to figure it all out. I was getting, you know, I was figuring things out, but there were so many gaps in my knowledge. I didn't know, I didn't know what to do. And then I saw advertised, I think it was in the back of like Fangoria or maybe, uh, I'm not sure, a uh, correspondence course with Dick Smith. And Dick Smith is the godfather of the industry. I mean, he's the one who pioneered uh, overlapping foam latex appliance techniques. Uh, people still use his blood formula. Um, he's just, you know, he's mostly known for the exorcist. Oh, uh, of course. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and people, by the way, people forget that Max von Sydow in that movie was like 35. He was not an old man, but everyone just thinks of Max von Sydow as an old man. And it, was, it became, if you kept up with him, it seemed a little or casually kept up with Max von Sydow. It was a bit of a surprise to find, see him later and realize that he didn't look like <laughs> that old man in The Exorcist. <laughs> and then later on, Max von Sydow, when he actually became very old, looked like Dick Smith's makeup on him from The Exorcist back when he was wow. 35. Wow. Um, I mean, Dick Smith had these incredible, he also did um, Salieri's makeup on, and, uh, yeah. uh, and uh, Amadeus. Amadeus, yes. Yeah. Um, and, the, and, when, and one way that he did it, it's just a, a, a unique thing that I think he only Dick would have thought of. Uh, the actor's name, F. Murray Abraham. F. Yes, thank you. F. Murray Abraham. So he has the life cast of F. Murray Abraham. He knows he has to make an old age makeup on him. And Dick Smith, great sculptor that he is, just is never quite satisfied 
with the realism that he gets out of his sculpts. So he looks at the life cast of F. Murray Abraham. He looks at himself in the mirror and Dick Smith's getting pretty old at this point. And uh, he says, you know, like our foreheads are about the same size and shape. So <laughs> um, he puts some old age wrinkles some latex wrinkles stipple on his own forehead, wrinkles it up, takes a life cast of his own forehead, takes it off paints in a thin layer of melted clay into that mold, peels it out, and then sticks that to the life cast. That becomes the forehead sculpt of uh, Salieri's makeup. Mm. It's actually Dick Smith's forehead. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And he was incredibly generous. Ever since um, Dick Smith decided to... um to share all his secrets with everyone that I think pre Dick Smith, everyone was very sort of isolated and it wasn't really an industry more than it was like a collection of grumpy men um, mm-hmm. who are all in their own little corners, not sharing their secrets, all in competition with each other. Everybody's sort of being found very jealously guarding their part of it. But I think, um, did completely change that by just deciding. And I know he wasn't like that, like always, he wasn't like that as a young man. He's like made that to, you know, he evolved mm. into that. I think, is that, is that fair Howard? You know, he kind of, yeah, he did sort right. of become that guy who then decided mm. like, I'm going to share all my secrets. If people show an interest, if they were worthy of his time, because I know he didn't just like randomly, you know, encourage everybody. And we've got stories too for people who, you know, weren't um, instantly encouraged by him. Um, but I, I think that, you know, he got, he he started this thing in, in motion. I can't imagine, for example, if I wanted to become a film director that I could um, look up in, you know, not famous monsters, famous directors magazine and say, Oh, look, there's Alfred Hitchcock's address. I'm just going to call <laughs> him and say, Hey, Alfred, how do you direct a movie? You know, I mean, that's just like, that just seems completely ridiculous. But actually, um, Dick Smith gave his address to everybody. I mean, it was in uh, his address was in making a monster, wasn't it, Howard? It, yeah. it was in, um, it was in like magazines. You could see like a right to, you know, for his correspondence course. And it wasn't like some, you know, PO box. It was like, it isn't it like his house? Uh, it's yeah, like, it was his house. Yeah, Lord. yeah. Connecticut, right? Yeah. Yeah. So then, you know, he sends me this huge three ring binder full of, you know, industry secrets, what had been industry secrets. And he mentored who knows how many. Oh, knew who else was a student of his at roughly the same time I was, was Guillermo del Toro. Oh, wow. Who was in, you know, now he was setting up a makeup effects studio in Mexico City. Right, and of course, I think I remember. Uh, sometimes you'd get you get updates uh, and newsletters from uh, Dick Smith about uh, other students. He may have mentioned Guillermo at some point. He liked to like c- keep his students inspired by saying, "Hey, I know this guy," and uh, uh, I think one guy was in Yugoslavia and had no access to materials, but the guy had figured out somehow to. Um, reverse engineer silicon because he has silicon caulk and he found out how to di- and he found out how to dilute it with something some sort of solvent and then how to reset it again inside of his molds and that guy may be one of the first people to start making silicon molds silicon appliances whenever someone discovered a new trick dick was very very good about disseminating it you know like 
you know, try this, everyone try that. I just, I just heard about this new material. Uh, he was just, he was a beautiful, uh, beautiful man, great artist, and just massively, massively generous. Uh, you know, when you start off in this industry, it's very difficult. When I started, uh, I had roommates, and my roommates were Greg Nicotero and Robert Kurtzman, and we oh. rented a house, and we had no money whatsoever. And it was like three bedrooms, one bath, three grungy 20-something makeup effects guys. And and it's the only way we could survive. We had so little money that we would, each of us would at once a week, the beginning of the week, go to Kentucky Fried Chicken and buy a big family-style bucket. And that bucket of chicken lasted us a whole week. We had to ration it. We had no money. You know, we were making like $300 a week cash. Mm-hmm. And that had to go for rent and you know, whatever else. So we really, really struggled. And that went on for a while. And then when you, when we decided to start K and B, we didn't make money for five years, you know? So when people say like, I'm going to start my own shop, I'm like, yeah, go ahead, have fun. But it's true. It it took a long time. It's not success overnight. It took Mm -hmm. years and years and years to build a reputation, to build a bank account, to build, you know, what we have today. Um, And it's very, very difficult. And you know, I think if you grow up in L.A. and you get into this, that's great. It's easy, easier, mm-hmm. perhaps, uh, because you have your families here. If you travel from some other place and you come here, that's a that's a you have pretty big balls, in my opinion. You know, uh, Bob Kurtzman moving from Pressline, Ohio, and just taking a stab at this and it ended up being successful for him. I give him a lot of credit for having a lot of guts to do that. Any of these guys that moved from wherever in, in the United States and, and even outside of the United States, you know. You know, again, growing up in Los Angeles, it gave me the opportunity to to reach out to Stan Winston and Rick Baker and, and other makeup idols of mine. And they were always very kind and accepting and supportive. And that this was mid-80s. And it was around that time that it was kind of the golden age of splatter films. Uh, makeup effects people were being asked to do increasingly gory stuff you know it's producers pushing the envelope and seeing how shocking you can make it and see what you can get away with uh and by today's standards it all seems kind of seems all kind of tame (laughs) but back then there was kind of a moral panic about it um this you know people were shocked uh at what their kids were watching and how gruesome and realistic um the gore was of course by today's standards it's actually not realistic if you go back and look at that stuff uh, but it created a bit of a moral panic. And whenever that happens, society usually blames the artist. And uh, Howard remembers uh, that period. I actually just stumbled across a DV or a video of myself on this broadcast with Clive Barker and Dave Scow and all the, you know, uh, all these, all these great writers, the splat pack of the nineties that we had done in San Francisco. I totally forgot about it. And that comes up in the interview. And there was a big discussion about that. That was really it. And people like, well, you know, if people watch these movies, they do bad things. And Dave Scow, who's a really great writer, he said, well, if that's the case, then we should make sure that they run good movies and, you know, Disney films in prison because then they'll do good things. It was such a stupid thing to say. And I remember like, you know, Dave Scow during that interview was getting really pissed at the interviewer because they were just like, so, you know, did you ever have any girlfriends? And he's like, what do you talk like? What do you think? We're just like pariahs. So there was a period 
where that was happening. It was a short period, luckily, but yeah, people were blaming what we did, be it makeup effects or be it uh, writing or directing, you know, on, on, uh, us, you know, s- s- affecting society in some way, which is complete and utter nonsense. Um, I don't believe, <laughs> look, watch, watching TV today, watching things on streaming. I don't think that's the case because I can't believe <laughs> that they even get away with half the shit they do these days on, on television, more so than they do on film. So I'm like, okay, well, I guess that's a dead issue. I also mm-hmm. think that that probably stemmed from the ratings board because the, the film rating board was so, intense about you know censoring things for the public you know for the general audience now they're really have no power nobody gives two flying you know f's about them because it's all streaming so it doesn't really matter anymore there's something about uh makeup effects i would say in particular maybe more so than any other art and and within film that really uh inspires this sort of um, fraternity and uh, this community around it. And it's, what do you think accounts for that? A lot of us always say, if we all grew up on the same street, it would have been amazing. You know, <laughs> it's almost, I always liken it to close encounters, you know, where people have this image in their head and they have to get to devil's tower, Wyoming. Yes. <laughs> and, and it's true. And when you go to like these conventions, um, it's like that. There's like hordes and hordes of people that are just like you. It is a massive community and we're all very tight, you know, especially my generation is very, very close. Um, you know, all the Joel Harlow and Bill Corso and, you know, Shane Mahan and Mike Hill, all these guys were all, you know, we all grew up in different parts of the country and, and, and the world. And, but yet we all shared the same loves and likes and, did all the same stuff. And when we all came together in LA and uh, realized (laughs) we were all very similar, you know, but we did all start off on our own. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, I just taught myself in my bedroom how to do this, how to draw, how to sculpt, how to paint, try to figure things out, how to try to do makeup. They all did. Some were better than others. And, uh, but you know, we all had a calling and it's like, if you're going to do this, you have to come to LA. And so everybody moved to L.A. from all over the country. And, um, you know, then we started to, you know, learn from one another, which is the most important thing and helping each other. Mm-hmm. And if somebody had a personal project or whatever, you would work with them if they if you needed help. And then as you work in shops, you know, different shops, because we all, you know, either work for like Stan Winston or Rick Baker or Kevin Yeager or Mark Showstrom or whoever. And and, you know, you just start learning from one another. And, and that's really it, you know, working with people in a, in a, in a work uh, environment that you're learning from. I learn every single day, you know, like I watch the guys here at K and B, you know, sculpt or paint or whatever mold make. And I see things that, that I've not, that I'm not familiar with and I'll absorb that. Or if I'm on set, same thing. I'll watch the makeup artist, be it a beauty makeup artist, you know, see how mm-hmm. they may apply eyelashes, you know, um, which is valuable to me because I have to do that as well at times or, or then one of my friends like Steve Prouty doing this really amazing paint work on a super cool creature that we're doing on a show. So it's, it's constantly learning and, and, and reinventing things. When I first got to New York, I did a PSA thing, anti-drunk driving thing. And I think they were just expecting some, you know, like just splatter some blood or something on, on the actress. Wait, how old were you? 
Oh, I mean, I'm in business. I got to New York, so I was. Oh, okay. I was probably 24, 25, I would say, right. at this point, I think. And uh, it was an interesting project because it was produced by a trauma surgeon from a hospital in New Jersey. And he cast his own daughter, his 16 year old daughter, to play the part of the victim. And I sculpted a very gruesome, uh, going through the windshield sort of simulation with blood tubing underneath it. Uh, so I could pump blood out through the lacerations in the face and that kind of thing. So I thought, you know, cause I asked him like, how, how, how bad do you want this? And he said, I want this to look real. And that means doing research. And that could be kind of gut churning cause you have to go look at real, you know, photos of this stuff. We ended up shooting the emergency room scenes in the real hospital. And we have the actress on the bed. And, uh, at the same time, an actual, there's a call, there's a call f- for, you know, people to, for doctors to nurses to assemble in the emergency room because an actual car wreck has happened. It actually hadn't gotten in yet, but they didn't know that. So these doctors come running in, they just see someone on the, you know, on the, on the, on the bed, the doctor runs over and even close up, the doctor puts his fingers on, cause he thinks it's the actual, uh, the real victim. This doctor doesn't know that we're apparently didn't see the cameras and was in a oh, hurry. Man. Yeah, so he thought it was real, and he he runs in and he puts his fingers on the eyelid to try to pull it open so we can check pupil dilation. But of course, it won't open because I didn't put an opening there. It's just one solid piece of foam latex. But he kind of pulls on it and he kind of looks at it, cockeyed, and, like, what? and he, he he would have figured it out pretty quick. But I was like, no, that's we're filming. That's not <laughs> that's not your patient. <laughs> And he goes, oh, he turned around and then he turned around again and looked at it and he goes, wow, that's good. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. You know, Um, but that was at that point I graduated to using, um, uh, you know, foam latex uh, materials, which is a lot more. I mean, I started out using Elmer's glue and then slip slip cast latex, which is kind of how John Chambers and those guys back in the day, like in the thirties would do. I don't know if they had foam latex yet back then. And foam latex is kind of what the name implies. It's latex that's add a soaping agent to it. You foam it up and then you bake it in an oven quickly. So the rubber vulcanizes and it retains that shape. And it is a difficult material to master Uh, temperature, humidity, everything affects it. And the first times you try it, it always, it's always a disaster. It collapses. It comes out looking like Swiss cheese. <laughs> it, it gets a very frustrating medium to work. So a lot of times in movies you'll see in the, uh, in the credits, they're just foam technicians. And those will be, if it's a big show, there might be six, seven of those guys. And that's all they do is sweat, wow. the, sweat the details about, uh, foam formulation, um, getting it the right consistency and pouring it before it sets and, all this stuff. It's just, it's, it's a terrible, it's not a terrible material. It's very lightweight and that's and very incredibly lightweight, very soft. And it makes uh, great prosthetics, but it's hard to use. And it also can't be colored intrinsically. And that's very, very important for a point that Howard's going to make in a minute. You know, the industry hasn't changed tremendously through all the decades with the exception of materials um, you know, we've really enhanced materials and that mostly has to stem from um, the industry changing to digital and out of from film, because with digital, you see everything. 
film always was a bit of a buffer because of the grain of the film. So you could get away with certain things and use certain materials, but now it's virtually impossible. But the techniques are relatively the same. I mean, now we're venturing into 3D printing and 3D modeling, and that's really become a great new tool. And we use it a lot here. We have four printers that run 24-7 at the shop, and and it's uh, we're constantly printing things where, you know, we could spend a month sculpting this creature head, but we can do it in a couple days, uh, 3D model it, and then print it in like two days. And, you know, because productions are getting faster and faster in their schedules, you know, for some reason, pre-production is a dirty word um, and uh, they don't want to do it. And and so we have to find ways to work within their their schedules uh, the best we can and and continue to you know be a thriving company in terms of making money. So and that also goes hand in hand with when, you know, you're working on a film and you're working with the visual effects department. You know, it's not all makeup effects. It's not all visual effects. It's always now a combination, which is wonderful. And you're able to create a really cool um, magic trick for the audience, you know, and that's really it. You, you don't want the audience to stop and go, oh, wow, look at that effect. You want, want it to integrate into the storytelling. That's what's most important and to make sense. And, um, you know, just, and I, I find that in the, in the beginning of the digital revolution, there was, uh, the mindset of like, there's just every filmmaker wanted to utilize that technique, but it didn't, it's, it's, it's not just because you can, doesn't mean you should. And there are many, many movies I always keep in my head as points of reference that I was like, why would you do that? That's, it looks so bad, you know, but yet I know on set, the filmmakers like, Oh, it's going to be great. It's going to be state of the art, but it's not, it fails as it failed (laughs) the storytelling of the movie and pulls you out. But it's it's just a very it was a very strange period, you know, after Jurassic Park. Um, but, you know, you like we all work together in the makeup effects world. We now work hand in hand with visual effects, which is a great marriage of the two. It's a great, great partnership and collaboration. And it has to be because now it's not about our individual departments. It's more about uh, facilitating the director's vision and what he wants, you know, so it's not. The days of grandstanding, like, you know, there's more practical dinosaur shots than there are visual effects dinosaur shots, you know, and you go and you count them in Jurassic Park. Those days are long gone. It's not it's not important. Every you know, it's about what is the end product and how do we get there? And that's that's all part of collaboration and and partnership with with your your folk, your people and then uh, and then other departments, you know, when you're on film. You know, it, it it made sense, you know, that someone like Guillermo del Toro, who wrote the foreword to to the book, your book here, uh, you know, who was a filmmaker and uh, accomplished makeup yeah. effects guy and a real monster kid who really could marry all of those techniques so seamlessly. Well, I, I, yeah, well, I think Guillermo is 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 a great example. And, and he's also, um, you know, uh, an exception to the rule because he has a great eye. Because he is a great storyteller, because he knows what looks good, and he and he trusts his instincts, and and he's a super super smart guy, and the guy can do anything. You know, he's kind of like James Cameron in the sense it's like you can't pull the wool over Guillermo's eyes, mm-hmm. like you can't pull the wool over James Cameron's eyes because they'll do your job as well, or if not better. So you know, you better be on the point all the time. And um, uh, you know, I've never worked for Guillermo as a director. Um, I've worked for Guillermo when he was a producer and it was great. And, and we've been friends for a long, long time. 
And, uh, you know, I admire the hell out of him. I know uh, a lot of my friends that have worked with him as a director. It's very um, uh, challenging in a good way, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. Same as our relationship with Quentin Tarantino, because we've done all Quentin's movies for since Reservoir Dogs. And Quentin is a very challenging director, but in a, in a great, productive, positive way, where he's hard on you, but he's hard on you because he wants you to perform the best you possibly can and, and bring to the table your greatest achievements. And it feels great every day. You're, you're beaten up and exhausted at the end of every single day on Kill Bill. I was fried every single day. But I had the best time ever, and I would do anything to make him happy and give him what he wanted. And I and I do believe that that's the same with Guillermo del Toro, because you really want the project to succeed because he is so invested. That's the other thing, too. You know, you it's difficult to be the, the cheerleader and be, you know, full on when the leader or leaders are 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 less than stellar. That's a very difficult thing, you know? So when I go in for meetings, I really, I I think I have a good nose about it and I can sniff out the imposters pretty quick. And, and if I do, then I just, we kind of steer, steer away from the project because we just know it's not going to be fulfilling for us and it needs Mm -hmm. to be fulfilling for us. You know, it's, it's not just a job. It's like, well, fine, we'll just do it. And that'll, it'll be over with whatever, you know, and we, it has to work as a, as a creative, um, uh, collaboration for us, you know, and, and when we start, when Greg and I go in and, and meet uh, directing a team or, or directors and producers, we say, we are not vendors. We are part of the creative team. And, and that, that's a difference. You know, you can hire somebody to make you a fake arm or make you a fake head, da, da, da. but when you're talking about designing the sequences, designing the characters, helping bring everything to life, it's part of the creative team. And we're very, very much into that. I mean, Greg has proven that on the walking dead, um, you know, where he has been instrumental in the look and creation of everything and the storytelling. I mean, he's very, you know, he's, he's the directing producer on, on that show. Mm-hmm. And um, he really, really leads the charge. And one of the very few people that has been on, you know, day one to day one million and six, whatever, whatever <laughs> it's been, uh, you know, as the show finishes up, it's the original show finishes up its run. But Greg is, you know, that's a great example, you know, as, as in terms of bringing more to the table. And that's also what Greg and I do. Mm-hmm. Our personalities are that way. It's not just like, oh, I'm just a makeup effects guy. I'm here to help orchestrate everything. And half the time <laughs> we do. We orchestrate mm-hmm. more than than people know and and more than production realizes. And, and uh, it's about the entire thing, helping every single department out and helping facilitate the needs of the production. Marshall, as you're putting the book together, collecting all these stories, what's, what surprised you about what was something that you got out of this or something you learned along the way that you weren't expecting when you went in? I don't, you know, I love movies and I loved um, TV and I've grown up, you know, obsessed with the industry and obsessed with the art of it. Um, but, you know, a lot of it happens um, not because everybody gets on, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of great art happens um, out of strife and disagreement and, and, and even tragedy. Um, and it's funny and sort of wonderful to come up across a, a part of the industry that isn't doesn't reflect that at all not at all it wasn't so much a surprise as just like a, a really sort of wonderful big box of chocolates to sort of open up and mm-hmm. go oh my god that's amazing and that's amazing and like how incredible i mean and you know how it's telling stories about how 
he was welcomed into the industry by his heroes, by Stan Winston and, and Rick Baker and, and, and Dick Smith. And, and, and then, you know, and then we've got the a next generation of, of makeup effects people who tell the same story, but about Howard and Howard's mm. um, generation. And you see how, um, you know, this one little sort of, you know, I don't want to get all sort of like, you know, touchy feely, but the whole, Paying it forward thing I, that Dick Smith started is just it's just completely created this pocket in Hollywood where um, everybody it's just a huge love fest. It's like the makeup industry, although obviously there are issues from time to time. But I tell you, it's like flipping Woodstock compared to the rest of the industry. The sci-fi had that reality show Face Off. Yeah, remember that show? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I was contacted to, I think they contacted me to be a contestant on that show. And I got to the, like, they had winnowed all the candidates down to about 20 people. I was one of those 20. Oh, yeah. I remember you telling me about this. Yeah. And <laughs> uh, I didn't make the final cut. I didn't get past the interview. Because they called me and said, what are you like in a competitive situation? And my exact word was inert. (laughs) (laughs) And they laughed and I laughed. And because we both knew it was over. (laughs) (laughs) Going into it, producers just assumed that this is going to be like every other reality show and people are going to be nasty to each other and people can do anything to win. And that's not the community of makeup effects. It's um, uh, it's very nurturing. Everyone is such a, a happy little club of weird, you know, monster kids uh, that are happy to be doing this stuff. They don't feel very competitive. So I don't think that I was uh, an outlier by saying that I wasn't going to be, you know, uh, cutthroat in, in in, in the reality show, because yeah. in, these are the, these are the people who had no interest in sports. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And then, so in the reality show, it was beautiful. You see someone, you know, uh, they're given a challenge. You know, you got to make a monster in five days or whatever, certain kind of monster, and you you, know, you got to sculpt the thing. That takes time. Making the mold takes time. Uh, and back then, they were using on the show. They were just using gypsum plaster uh, negatives, and you know, then you got to pry that mold off of your sculpture and clean it out. And sometimes, especially when you don't have a lot of time and it hasn't set up completely or you're in a hurry, the mold on, I remember on face off one episode, one guy's mold starts to crack and break and that's a disaster. It's very hard to uh, come back from that. Some guys have trouble with their their mold and everybody else in the shop, their competition um, uh, stops what they're doing and runs over to help him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that just kind of said it ever that said everything about about that community of makeup effects you know right. uh, there, there's some friendly competition but everybody wants to see what you're up to everybody wants to see what monster you're making everyone wants to see each other succeed everyone everyone wants to see your monster come to life regarding uh working together yes that was probably season one of face off and then it kind of like turned into a, into a battle of who knows what. Uh, and that was always my big issue with things like that. And also some of the people that came out of those shows that were celebrities um, afterwards, uh, and they 
they, I just saw them being very bitter and, and uh, not very nice to one another. And I, I pointed out to a, some of them that I knew that that's not going to get them very far and mm. you can't do it alone. And if you need a favor, you'll have nobody to ask the favor of because you've made enemies with everybody, but you have to be friends with everyone. Again, in my generation, we're all friends, you know, yes, there's friendly competition, but we always lift each other up. We always want everybody to succeed. We're always very supportive and enthusiastic about, you know, the work that people are doing, you know, um, other shops, other, other individuals. It's very exciting. I mean, that's why I love Instagram because I get to see what my friends are up to. I love it, you know? Um, and it's, it's not a commentary on things. People aren't writing mean things as they would on maybe other social media platforms. And capturing that vibe and, um, hearing the stories um it was just you know just wonderful just gives me sort of warm fuzzies and it's why everybody's in the industry is so excited about the book i think you know if i could say that because it's like everybody feels like it really reflects you know their lives and their careers and um you know i'm just so happy that we were able to sort of capture that there is this chapter called war stories and it is mostly about um uh you know dealing with producer expectations and protecting your work and uh, that kind of thing. But Howard, I'm sort of interested in like, um, I don't know, any onset disasters that weren't necessarily um, not, not a producer war story, but one of those oh, probably early on, I'm guessing yeah. if at all ever in your career, do you ever have oh, one yeah. of those? Oh, I'm never going to work again after this screw up. No, no, I never thought that, but I, but yeah, there's certainly disasters. The, the, it's really about how you handle them. And, and that's what's more important. Things will go wrong in every single department. Uh, a director will not make his days. That's a big problem. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I could do a gag that doesn't work. That's a problem. But you, you don't sit there and I have learned this because it wasn't always like this. You don't sit there and lament about it and have excuses. And, and what you do is say, listen, I know that didn't work. Let me give me, a, give me just a little time to rethink this and I will remedy it. And that's happened a lot of times. I mean, Kill Bill's a great example. So Quentin had a huge expectation. And at first I didn't meet that expectation. And he was he was not that pleased. And I felt really, really bad because I don't want to let anybody down. And um, I had come up with a way to do something. I tested it. It seemed to work. I showed him he was happy. Then on the day, it was a total bomb. And it took a lot of time to set up. It was a lot out of his schedule for that day. And uh, he was really upset with me. And and uh, I understood it. And we rethought it. And instead of doing it complicated, we came up with a way to do it really simplistically. And it worked absolutely fantastic. At the end of the show, Quentin came to me and he said, you know what? I was so happy you were here because you didn't have excuses. You didn't pull mm-hmm. the friend card. What you did is you said, I will figure it out. And you did. And you made it work. And, and, um, that was really, that meant a lot to me, you know, what do you see yourself doing after retirement? And it's a leading question because I have been following Rick Baker's Instagram and he seems to be busier than ever. Yeah, um. <laughs> <laughs> he is. He's doing more now than he ever did. I think. And he loves it. Yeah. He loves it. Clearly. I, I mean, I think when I retire, which I don't think is that far away, I'll do things that make me happy, you know, and who knows what that is. It could be a hundred different things. I'm never bored. I'm never uh, yeah. bored. And I think that's same with Marshall. Like it's, it's essential for us to never be bored and we're not, we're not bored people. So. Also Howard and I, we have 
we've been talking about some other writing projects. Um, I'm not going to let Howard go off and smell the flowers just yet. It's like we've got, <laughs> we've got some other stuff. We've got some other stuff to do. And yeah. uh, apart from, you know, uh, Masters of Makeup Effects um, Volume 2, you know, I just, um, I've never been happy with anything that I've done than this book. You know, I've never been prouder of anything. I've never had so much buzz around something that I've done. It's, it's very exciting. And so as far as I'm concerned, um, I've got, you know, my best career years are ahead of me now, you know? So it's like, I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. You just have to carry me out in a box. <laughs> All right. I'll go with you, Marshall. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but we can, you know, we can have fun too. Yeah. Right, go to Disneyland, oh, make movies. Yeah, it always has to be fun. Oh my goodness! Yeah, always, always. The Well is produced, edited, and recorded by Anson Mount and me, Brandon Edgens. Theme music written and performed by Jonathan Myberg. Additional music for this episode by Brandon Edgens. And special, special thanks to Marshall Julius and Howard Berger for letting me join their little special effects makeup love fest. I enjoyed it immensely, guys. And if you want to feel some of the makeup effects love, go buy their book, Masters of Makeup Effects. Have a great week, everybody. Everybody.